I'm Jennifer Morrison, and you're listening to The Bookshelf, where I talk with the authors I love about the books I love. Today we're talking with Tom Lin, who is the author of The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su. This book was published in 2021, and The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su is the story of an orphan Ming Su, the son of Chinese immigrants who was raised by a notorious leader of a California crime syndicate. This book is huge and sprawling, and I don't mean huge in pages, I just mean huge in scope. Tom Lin really just took on a huge, huge world of interesting and unique characters and landscape. I was really fascinated to to ask him about how he tackled such a big world, how he dreamed up such a big journey. It was really great to just be able to get in there with Tom and find out what it was that inspired him and what carried him through the story and how he found the heartbeat of all these characters. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation with Tom Lin. All right. Tom Lin, welcome to A3C Reads. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. I wanted to go back to the Young Lions Awards for a second. How cool was that to be in that group of finalists? I think we say it a lot. It's an honor just to be in the room. Every part of that sentence is true. Specifically, like even the room itself. Um, <laughs> right. To like find out that there's this whole back section to the library that I've literally never seen. It was very exciting. And every one of those books is so drum tight and precise. It's a real honor to be just among them. And I had a great time. And I believe it was sponsored by Chandon Champagne. So I can really assure you that I had an excellent time there. Can't go wrong with champagne, right? <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm learning that champagne and books really do go together. And it seems to be a thing. <laughs> it's a great pairing, I think. Well, I want to show your book for a second. So if anyone watching has not read it yet, you can see all my little tabs. This is Tom's book. I could not get over how epic the scale <laughs> Thank you. was in this novel. I have lots of like craftsmanship questions if you yeah. have the patience for all that. When you were starting out on this journey, writing this novel, how do you even begin to tackle something that has this many like twists and turns and did you have a sense of these tentpole moments of twists and turns or did you feel like you knew the characters and they kind of took you on a ride you didn't expect or you knew the beginning and the end but you didn't expect the middle you know I don't know yeah yeah I have to answer these questions like as though I know how but now I'm working on my second book and I'm like did I ever know how to do that how did I do that in the first place the main challenge of it is you have to decide amongst this field of infinite possibility literally anything can happen it's kind of like when you think what should I have for dinner today I will just go to bed hungry for want of deciding. And I think I have like a really similar problem with telling this story. And so one thing that I really found was helpful was research. So I kind of had this basic idea of I haven't seen a Western with an Asian American protagonist who's like front and center. And so I kind of took that kernel and I realized I had all these different places that he could be, all these different things that he could be involved in. And in order to choose, I ended up doing a lot of research. That's kind of how I'm trained. I was an English major in college. I'm doing a PhD now. And I think the fun part about research is that it feels almost as productive as writing, but requires way different brain muscles. It's very satisfying. It's kind of like procrastinating in a productive way. Um, but I, I, I feel procrastinating you know? in a productive way. I'm going to use that when I'm researching for pitching <laughs> on projects. Guys, I am procrastinating in a productive way. Exactly. I'm thinking about it up here, but I'm not doing any work <laughs> on it, but I'm getting prepared for it. I would find out all these kind of historical events kind of narrowed down this field of possibility. It delineated where he could go, what kind of people would welcome him, what kind of things would he experience. And then I started doing field work along the road of where Ming travels. The Interstate 80 actually runs pretty much alongside the old Transcontinental Railroad. Um, wow. There's, there's a couple of spots where technology has gotten a little bit better. And so we make a couple of shortcuts that weren't present back then. But pretty much between Sacramento and definitely Salt Lake, you're never more than maybe a dozen or at most 20 miles from the old route. And so that's what I would do. I would drive. I was listening to a lot of like great courses, audiobooks on philosophy at triple speed because uh, I was driving back and forth between college and 
and where my family's from in New York, I would just kind of get out of the car in the middle of the summer, snap a few pictures, try to like walk as close as I could to the rails. And then finally, you know, you, you have this pile of facts and knowledge and you have to kind of tell a story with that. And for me, I found that what was really helpful was like, you know, I wanted to share certain things that I'd learned that I thought were particularly cool, like, you know, certain geological facts or certain kind of historical events. And so they ended up working themselves into the plot because I was thinking about them so much. That's really cool. Yeah. So you kind of just so have it's to like you were sort of excavating story yeah. from research. Yeah, because story, I think, is so hard and research is so much easier cognitively because your research is collecting cool things and story is like, where are all these things from? What am I doing? with them? Right. Yeah, you have to make a plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You definitely had a plan, or at least felt like you had a plan. The characters also, though, I mean, with the world is so rich, which makes sense that you've done this much research. It doesn't surprise me hearing that you actually physically went there because it feels that way, the way you describe things. But also the relationship of the characters is so powerful. The prophet who's traveling with Ming, were there certain relationships in your life that you felt like inspired those things? Were they like aspirational relationship? Was it your audiobooks on tape of yeah. philosophy? Or... <laughs> yeah, it was almost entirely in my head. Um, the funny thing about writing, especially fiction, as long as you're not writing it down, what you're doing is experiencing delusions. You're just walking around thinking about people that don't exist and conversations that never happened. But as soon as you write it down, you're no longer crazy. I drew inspiration a little bit from people that I know and like, you know, a little bit from family members. There was this debate, uh, evergreen Twitter debates about whether or not authors are permitted to like borrow bits of other people for use in their fiction. Um, yeah. And for me, where I come down on that is we always want to believe that we have that ability to pluck a certain detail from somebody and then just implanted into a different character. But I think what ends up happening is it's never that clean. And so when you go to remove that one little fragment, you always kind of end up pulling out some more of it. These characters and their personalities are like interconnected webs of how they respond and what they like and what they fear. And so if you go and you try to just pull one thing, you usually end up taking more than you mean to. And so yeah. I tried to be a little conscious of that. The prophet character is a little bit based on my actual grandpa, who's very old and he's always been kind of gruff. He doesn't speak English and, wow. and he certainly can't walk as far as the prophet does. And so you look for beginnings or kind of seeds or seed crystals in the people that you know. So you're not totally generating these personalities like de novo, but otherwise you'd just be writing a memoir. Otherwise you just say like, well, you should just go talk to this person. Yeah. The real twist comes from having to go and say, well, how do I make you know this little packet of details into something that feels like a full person that goes all the way back? Yeah. And you did that over and over and over again, though. I mean, one of the notes that I wrote in the book as I was reading was I felt like you took all the characters that were normally sidelined and pulled them to the center. You took all of these characters that their quirks and sort of their eccentricities would have normally given them a smaller role in the story. And they felt so fleshed out and felt so whole and complicated. Were you just kind of collecting ideas of characters over time? Or was that bunch of eccentric characters something that came together all at the same time? I had this idea for a magic show because I wanted to introduce this kind of element of the supernatural just because I was going through these landscapes and it felt almost mundane to stop it at the real. So I wanted yeah. Yeah, like if you've ever driven through the desert. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, you're if you're very unlucky, you get to a point where the AC isn't really enough for how hot it is outside. And I think in those moments, I'm always like, this is like a different kind of place. People shouldn't be here. And right. I wanted to kind of have some of that wonder in that story. And so I ended up trying to find supernatural elements to go into it. I started with basic sketches, like this is a superpower and this is the person that I want to have it. And then you lock them together in a room and you see like who gets in a fight and what are they fighting about? You want your characters, you want 
want their responses to feel real, at least to you when you're writing them, because otherwise they're not believable. And so I think as you end up walking through these different scenarios or these different bottlenecks where they have to make a decision or where they're confronted by a problem, you end up discovering stuff about these characters that you hadn't mm. yet realized. And so it was really like a process of I would write a scene and I would say, oh, that makes me think of I should do this other scene. And so really at the end, it ended up being more process of assembly and patchwork rather than going all the way through. That's so interesting. And the edit process, did you find an editor early on in your process with this novel or was it something that was wholly yours for a long time before someone was weighing in or I, um, I feel like because I, yeah. the characters are so specific and the world is so specific I can only imagine how tricky it would be to have people weighing in on this this is sort of the underlying thing that I'm saying oh yeah I had the fortune of working with Ben George at Little Brown who was just fantastic and very early on in the editing process we had this call and he was like yeah I know like you're a debut novelist like you've never been edited before and he was like everybody's got their own philosophies here's mine and he said uh, I believe that an editor should read the book more closely than any sane person ever will <laughs> Fair right, and like, true, right? <laughs> like, let's go for it. He, I mean, he really, really did do that. There's some of the details in the book we spent weeks on. So we said six days of travel here. But then in this next chapter, you said there's only four mm. sunsets. So, you know, what happened in between? And I don't think anybody has ever sat reading the book and counting the days and nights. It's so interesting to like kind of have someone else step into this project, this kind of very solitary, antisocial world that you've built and kind of say, well, have you noticed, you know, these two things don't really quite line up or like this doesn't really connect with that. It ultimately comes down to trust. You have to believe that they're also there because they have an idea of what it's going to be in the end that they share with you. And so you're working toward building this thing together. And so it really does begin to feel like a team effort. There's a point where they just come over and they're like, you're done, you know, hand it over. Like, you're wow. Finished. So the editor really had a sense with you that this is complete at some point. I mean, there's that. And there's also the deadline. There's this kind of very material conditions that are needing to line up. Like the book needs to be printed and like they've got to get the shipments out yep. and all these sellers have yep. to buy it. And so we want to keep tinkering on it but at a certain point they're like we have to move on to the next step and I think that is honestly a mercy even now if I do readings I'll edit on the fly when I read right like I'm not I was gonna quiet, say I you know <laughs> I feel like every time I write anything and I press send, I immediately see it differently. And I'm like, why would I send that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely. I can't believe I sent that. Like <laughs> I have a 10 second delay on my mail app that's like programmed. Oh, so when I hit wow. send, it gives me a little countdown for 10 seconds where I can undo it. No penalty. And I, I use that, that feature all the time. Wait, okay, I have to implement this. Okay, how, how is this possible? Promise I'm not a shill for this company. It's like this German company called Mail Butler. It okay, integrates mail with, Butler. I have a Mac. And I click send and it says like, we know you click send. Why don't you take 10 seconds? Just double check. And like, I could just do it with a post-it, I guess, on my screen that says, is everything right? But I use yeah, that feature. It changes. It, you see it differently as soon as oh, you yeah. press send. That button changes everything. I swear the button creates the typos. I 100% agree. But like, how did that get in there? I wish I had that 10 second undo timer for everything I do in life. God, wouldn't life be better? <laughs> just like, oh, actually, I'll, I'll do that one again. <laughs> Hang on, redo. Wow. I think you might have just changed, changed my <laughs> life, Tom. <laughs> you ready for That's incredibly really cool. correct emails. So tell me a little bit about like your journey to now. Did you grow up knowing you wanted to write? Were you writing as a kid? Were you fascinated with literature? What was your journey to getting this novel published? So I was born in Beijing. I was the son of a orthopedic surgeon and my mom was a general doctor. And now she's a nurse in America. And my dad is a surgeon in China still. Wow. And so they wanted me to be a doctor as well. No way. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, I'm not 
imagine why. <laughs> so kind of very early on in my childhood, my parents were both busy. We were like a, a new immigrant family. And so they were working all the time. And so when I finished school, they wouldn't be done with work yet. So we actually had a system where like I would just go to Queen's Library in Flushing and I would go to the children's room in the back and I would just sit there and read until they came to get me. And that was pretty much how I taught myself English. So actually there were, there, and there still are, but there still are a lot of words that I have only ever seen and kind of learned visually, wow. but I've never actually heard or even tried to say. And the unfortunate thing is like, now I'm getting to the position where like, when I mispronounce a word, sometimes people will assume like, oh, that's how it's pronounced. And I always have to be like, I'm not sure about that. One that I'm not sure about still is like, is it hegemon or is like hegemony? Like, why does the stress change? I'm not sure. I've never really bothered to look it up. I don't think I've ever said that word out loud either. <laughs> so I'm not weighing in on that one. <laughs> I pretty much learned English by reading these books and reading these stories. And I always wanted to tell stories. And I did a lot as a kid to whoever was patient enough to listen. And the whole time I was like, and then I'm going to be a doctor. Like, I'm just going to get this little story writing thing. I'm going to get this out of my system and then I'll be a doctor. And then I went to college and I was an English major. And then I told my parents. Did you go to college in America or did you go to yeah, college in China? I went to um, Pomona first time in California. Oh, great. Wow. I pretty much spent ages four to 12 many days per week, many hours per day in the library. And I really loved telling stories. I really loved writing things. And I tried several times to write books. So Mingsu is actually my third book length project. The first two are really bad. And I hope that they are destroyed. Like I haven't even bothered to see if they're still on the hard drive. Are um, you sure they're really bad? Or are you just being hard on yourself? I think they are genuinely bad. <laughs> I think they're genuinely bad. So I go to college and I was an English major and I was telling my parents, I'll graduate and then I'll go to night school for medicine and then I'll go to med school and be a doctor. Credit to them. I think we all understood that it was kind of a fiction that we were telling ourselves. And actually up until I signed the book contract to get it published, I was saying, and then I'll be a doctor. Wow. Luckily, I think as a family, we're all now pretty in, in agreement that I don't have to they, be a They're doctor supporting the fact that that's, this is not in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I always really, really want to tell stories. Kind of feels like saying, oh, when I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. And then suddenly one day someone's like, you're an astronaut. <laughs> it's like that level of impossibility. Um, yeah. And th that's why I didn't study creative writing in college. I studied English criticism because I figured it's a fool's errand to try to write a novel and be an author. Wow. So I'll just try to be as close to books as I can from the other side, from the critical side. I that think I really you a really interesting perspective, though, as you were journeying through the writing process. You literally studied how to critique writing and critique yeah. literature and storytelling. It must be interesting to have that insight as you're approaching the actual storytelling. I don't feel that in the writing. I don't feel you judging yourself in the writing, but I just feel like it must have been helpful to at least know what people are looking at when they're critiquing something. You know, I, I'm doing analytical and creative work at the moment, you know, for because I'm in grad school. And I honestly think it's like taking a break, it's mm. like doing something with one arm and then using the other arm, because I think they use two different modes of thinking. It's yeah. actually, it, it feels quite different. It just happens to be about the same thing, especially when I'm writing. I try not to think about how it'll be received or how it'll be critiqued, but I still have all of these analytical or philosophical texts that I'm thinking about as I'm writing. Uh -huh. And I think I'm thinking about myself in this lazy school of writing where like you actually don't really have to think too hard about anything as long as you assemble all the pieces in your brain stuff will leak out into what you're writing like the osmotic theory of writing um, sure yeah like you put it all in you've done all the research yeah. and somehow it's just gonna pour all out yeah yeah it's just like a moderately more advanced iteration of like i'll go to sleep and i'll put my french textbook under my pillow so that the knowledge will leak through the pages in time I, I, my let, test let's tomorrow. be fair for a second it's a little bit more of like the ten thousand hour thing i feel like you're if you're consuming <laughs> something on that level for that long i feel like you're undercutting 
undercutting the hard work that you've done over all those years of putting all of that storytelling inside of you. When you talk about the publisher stuff, especially after having two full-length novels that you decided not to pursue having published, what does that journey look like? Because for just the reader, we're like, these books appear. Yeah. And we're learning, I'm learning as a producer, almost every time, even when it's super early that I go to try to option something, they're like, oh, they option that before the publisher even engaged. And I'm like, how, what? Yeah. This is your debut novel, right? So for someone who's having their debut moment, what does that process look like? I feel like a lot of our listeners and our folks who like read along with us are curious about writing themselves. And so that feels like a big mystery to everybody. I would say in general, it is more mundane than you want it to be. So for instance, like we all use Microsoft Word, but those of us who believe that spending a little bit of money can make them more creative, my purchase of software. So I got this thing called Scrivener, which like is designed for writing books and people say they use it a lot for books. And so I put the whole thing together in this app. And then, you know, when we're working on it for like official edits with a real official publisher, like we're just sending a Word document back and forth. It's very banal, you know, and the final thing that goes out is a Word document. Um, yeah. And so there's a point at which like it becomes absolutely surreal. And that's when a box of the galley shows up at your door. Um, wow. And you're like, this thing that I've been scrolling through on my computer is actually the book. You know, there's a lot of I'm working on a thing. There's a thing that I'm working on for the whole time that I was working on the project. It was saved in my computer as working title Western. Oh, interesting. So I didn't actually get around to naming it until I felt done with it. I was lucky enough to connect with an agent who's spectacular. Her name's Lisa Quinn. And she sent it out to a, a couple of editors. And I think we got a couple of, we'll pass on this. And then um, Little Brown snapped it up. And then we finished up all the legal stuff in like maybe March, 2020. Yeah. And, and then coronavirus. And so we had this completely virtualized publishing experience. And the book got published in June 21. We were beginning to come out of the first of many false starts. We were beginning to come out of isolation. Yeah. Um, I don't think my experience was typical in many ways because you often get this question, you know, like, what's it like for a debut novelist? And, you know, sometimes you get invited to speak on panels, you know, like, what's the publishing process like? And it's as though you're trying to get by averaging everybody's responses, like, oh, like, what is it like the first time you drive a car? Like, you only do that once. It's different right. for everybody. But yet we're pooling our notes. We're trying to figure out what's the average experience like. I was lucky enough to have a team that I really trusted that, you know, I felt really had my back. And we were all just working on this little book. And then finally, cover gets made for it. It's incredible. Like, the book comes in the box. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, this book, that you it's so totally wild. It's, just it's gotta totally be so crazy. And this is all just ideas from your head that are suddenly like <laughs> a tangible thing that other people carry around with them. It's, 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 so it's wild. wild. I mean, I can tell you there is one group of people who their opinion of me doesn't change when I say that. And that's the students that I teach. I'll introduce it. I'll say, uh, my name's Tom Lynn. I'm your instructor. I'm teaching introduction to composition, university, right? Tom Lynn, I'm a grad student, wrote a book. It got a lot of nice reviews and yeah, that's it for me. And then I have a student who raises his hand and he says, um, okay, so, so we only have one essay due this quarter. We only have one. <laughs> No one blinks. Doesn't even register. And so after that, I'm just like, okay, so I only see one essay on the syllabus. Is that real? <laughs> That'll keep you oh humble. My God. That's amazing. I also wanted to ask, what is your sort of reach of different inspirations? Because there's a lot of poetry in your writing. And I'm curious if that has to do with your bilingual situation in terms of, I certainly don't know how to speak another language. So I don't know if that would affect my way of putting words together. But there's just so such beautiful poetry and their sentences. It was dangerous to go lurking in memory. At length, the sun dropped to the surface of the lake and pressed a while against its own reflection.
reflection before slipping under. I could go, I have pages of these quotes like this, where this is not normal. Like this is, it's very <laughs> rare. But also to come across writing like this, that is so additive to the story. Like it never took me out of the story. It never distracted me. It never felt forced. It felt like that poetry was very baked into the way that you write. Are you a poetry reader? Do you have favorite poet? Or is this just something that was in your life history? I do really like poetry. I really admire poets because they have so much less space to do something cool. And it's invariably cooler than a lot of the stuff that I try to write. There's one poet that I really, really love, W.S. Merwin, who actually mm. recently passed. And I have the essential W.S. Merwin. I have a couple of his, his later volumes. And he also actually translated Dante's Purgatorio, which is... No way! I think poets should do that more, translate old verse. It's Merwin, but it's also Purgatorio. Wow. And so that was a real trip to read. Yeah, I do really like poetry. I don't know if it has much to do with my bilingualism. I think I speak Chinese at a maybe second grade level because we left China when I was still pretty young. And then I went to English speaking schools. Yeah. But one interesting thing that'll happen, especially when I was younger, you know, my parents would get very mad at me. I would be yelling back at them in English and they'd be yelling at me in Chinese. And then there was a point at which I learned- it's a great Chinese. scene, by the way. It's, imagine the setup. But I learned it only from my parents, right? Who would never use any bad words around me or never use any curse words or slang. When they finally hit their limit, they would start cursing me up in Chinese. And I didn't know any of these words. It was almost as if there was a neutral gear beyond six that I could shift into where I just had to sit and just like listen to this very sound. angry sound. Yeah, but I had no idea what it meant. And I actually, I took It's probably a... therapeutic for any parent to oh, just yeah. be able to swear in an unknown language and like just get it oh, all yeah. out. And that sounds pretty bad, mom. And I'm sure I am that uh, and I'll do better. <laughs> I love my parents. But I took this Chinese for heritage class at Davis because I had to get a second modern language for my PhD. And it was me and a bunch of freshmen. And I took that for a year. We met every weekday for an hour. And I would say I retained maybe 15% of everything that I had. Really? I just have a really hard time holding on to languages. I'm the same way. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like I'm really struggling to learn Spanish. And I know a lot of words. I know oh, I can yeah, conjugate yeah. a lot of verbs. I have a lot of pieces of it. But to actually speak, I get so tongue-tied. I get so nervous. I feel like I always grab the wrong verb. I just, yeah. And it was interesting because I do want to take this person up on it. I won't reveal who it is right now. But I was meeting with an actor for a project. And he said, you should wake up in the morning and pay attention to every little thing that you do. You know, I sit up, I pull the sheet back, I put my feet on the ground, I walk to the bathroom and just make a list of things that you do in the day and translate just that list. And then challenge yourself to learn two verbs and five nouns every day from that translated list. He's like, because those are things you do every day and you're interested yeah. in them because it's things that actually impact you. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, I really have to do this. I don't know if that applies to Chinese for oh, you I or mean, not, like, but I'm with you. you. It those, slides right through me. They're always like, here's the first 50 words that you'll need to know. And it's always like bread. And you're like, how often do I talk about bread? Um, yeah. I remember I visited my cousin in China when I was a kid and she was learning English. And her strategy was to write the English word of common household items and stuff on post-its and put them mm. all over on the thing. And Thank so they were everywhere. everywhere. It's because you open it and you reach Looks for the door. It's like door, handle, and you close and it. And it's like coat hook. Yeah, I feel like that might work too. I'm going to be doing all these hacks where I'm just having Spanish <laughs> words everywhere in the house and I'm just trying my best. Sorry, we got distracted from our poetry. So this is a little bit more of a, I don't know, not scandalous topic, but like, you know, Ming is a violent man. 
And he's got this interesting like drive of vengeance, but you were able to still capture such a relatability in him. I don't know that I've ever felt that connected to a violent character. I think that that's always been sort of off-putting to me in the past just because I don't understand it. I don't feel like I have those impulses. So when I was reading it, I was really taken aback by this interesting mixture of this empathetic spirit or this really heart-filled spirit that was also raised to be violent. All he knew was, you know, he was just living what he knew. So what was your approach to walking out the balance to all of that. You know, violence is, for me, it was important to include violence and also in that quantity because I did want to hit that kind of major point of the Western where you exit civilization, you go into this kind of wild frontier where the only laws that govern you are, you know, how much force can you apply to another body and how much can you make your own will apparent? And that comes with a lot of baggage. And so I think one thing that I want to do with the violence is that these murders, they do end up weighing on him. Mm. And even though he's been trained, he's been raised not to think about it too much. But, you know, at the end of it, I think it becomes clear that he's operating out of this kind of web of obligation, this feeling of necessity, rather than any kind of actual hatred or malice in his heart. There's a way that I think you can treat violence and you can depict violence, especially in stories where it's almost like skipping a stone over water. If you hit it fast enough with enough momentum, you can actually skip over the parts of violence that are really upsetting for anyone to think about. Like, what is it actually like to end a life? Like, what is it actually like visit death on somebody? But if you hit it with enough momentum, it becomes this kind of cinematic gloss of pure Mm. action and pure activity. And so one thing that I really tried to do was I didn't want to slow down and linger on any scenes of violence because I think what I wanted to do was preserve this sense of we're going forward, it's just actions. We're kind of doing this ritualized Mm. action which is violent as it looks, but we never have to feel any of it because we're skipping right over the surface. And I think when we see Ming in kind of quieter moments, we visit that introspection and it does become troubling. And I think I personally am pretty squeamish about violence. We actually had a rat that's been living in the tree right next to our house. It built a nest. I like have been really reluctant to do anything about it, but finally I did set out a trap and like I caught it and like that's bothered me <laughs> since oh, I God. had to throw it's, it out. It's so hard. You know? I know. I mean, it's so hard. It's interesting to base the cycles of life sometimes. The world was different the time that this was set even, but you see anything about farming or oh, yeah. you know ranching and you realize that the cycle of life is really facing us at all times in a way that most of us are looking past. Sort of yeah. in the way you're saying like the skipping the stone we're not saying like well what happened to this chicken before it ended up on my plate but that is sort of baked into the cycle of things but it's interesting to look at it from that perspective it made me think a lot about when kids are raised in violent cultures or violent yeah. situations you know if kids are raised inside of a gang or if they're raised in a country that's in civil war or you know where that Ming has this interesting representation for someone who would have gone through something like that you know where it's like if all you've ever known is since you were seven years old someone's putting a gun in your hand or telling you that the way you're going to survive and have a meal tomorrow is to do something violent, then that's what life becomes. And it's really hard to imagine that reality. And it also makes me realize how privileged any of us are to not have to live that way or to have grown up that way. He's really fascinating in that way. And there's just such a tenderness in him and also the ferocity with which he loves. Is it Ada or Ada? Now I, I don't know how to say it. I've, I've always said Ada. Yeah, Ada. Ada. Yeah. yeah. He has such a impassioned love for her. It's really interesting to really look at the many different sides of this man that walk out through this whole Western novel. Yeah, you're trying to think about like violence in this kind of Western context and all these different connections that it has with masculinity and Mm. dominance. And especially in the context of these older Westerns that we would tell ourselves that not only did the job of explaining how the West was won, which kind of takes as a presumption that the West was something which needed to be won and specifically, you know, whom by and with what means. Trying to take that violence and lift it out of that context and put it all on this person who is not 
usually in that story. You know, the Western is such an American genre. It's a kind of story that we came up with ourselves and like everybody loves it. And one of the things that it does so well is this unspoken belief that you can engineer or you can find yourself in a situation. The only thing that counts is what you do in the now with yourself. This total self-reliance, total saturated action. And as a genre, it's always been directed towards the project of American imperialism, like cowboys and Indians. Like there's always this whole mechanism that's been supporting it. And what I want to do is kind of take that and just say like, well, what else can this machine do for us? Is it really just like an empowerment fixture dedicated to this one purpose or can it be molded and moved and deformed for other ends? But especially for Ming as like a violent character, you're with him for so long and it's hard to write a character that readers hate genuinely start to finish. Right. You know, yes, like it, of course. Yeah. It's not just hard for the reader. It's also hard for you who are writing it because you're like, no, this guy sucks. <laughs> you know, so you want to give people something to hold on to. And I think that's one thing that the Western does really well. It does kind of suggest like, oh, were you in this situation? You do just as yeah. well. Yeah. We all have this. Yeah, you're, it's bit, always you know, life or death. The stakes are so high. Exactly. And also it feels like this is very much a journey of someone letting go. And yeah. what I sort of took from it in the end was that you can't fully move forward until you've completely faced your past, which is, I think, something that women talk a lot about. And it's not something that men always embrace, you know, in storytelling. And so I think it's really interesting that you have this hyper-masculine, violent man who's complicated and complex and full and real and all this stuff, but that it feels like this is about him coming to the realization of having to face everything to be able to move into a new place. Yeah. Am I, I think, projecting that or am I reading that I right? Think, I think that's absolutely a part of it, which is like, I think about maybe two thirds of the way through, he kind of even gets that where he's like, I just have to do it. He doesn't yeah. really feel that he has a choice. He doesn't even really want to do it anymore, but he understands that he's in this cross-linked web of obligations and things that he must do, not for himself, yeah. but to secure his own place in the world. I often get asked, will there be a sequel? And for me, the answer is no, because I think for me, the story is Ming is earning his right to self-determine his future. And at the very end, mm. like that's the gift that he gets. He gets to decide mm. what's next for him. He doesn't have to check lists. He doesn't have anything like holding over from his old life. He's done. He gets to pick what he has to do next. And so it almost feels unfair for me as the author to pull him back and say, hey, actually, I need you for another story. You know, you've got more things. You can always do a prequel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can always go back into <laughs> Or spinoffs. There's a lot of good characters in there that can have spinoffs. Uh, that's really cool. Well, I just had such a great time going on this adventure. I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started reading the novel. And I can't believe it's a debut novel. Like, I think it's just spectacular. I'm just Thank a reader. You. I'm not, I'm no fancy critic or anything, but it was really a spectacular journey. And so you said you're working on a second novel now. How yes. is that coming along? How are you feeling? It's slow. <laughs> I often say that I find writing excruciating and mm. I do. Sometimes we were like, oh, yeah but rewarding too, right? And I'm always like, oh yeah, that as well. But in the moment, it's always like, why do I do this? Sometimes <laughs> I have a goal of 600 words per day. Um, wow. I'm batting maybe 300 on that goal. Got it. It's coming along. It's about an immigrant family in the late 1970s or so who come to America and actually end up trying to start this ranch slash farm. And then there's some other stuff that goes on. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. And I'm being vague because I don't really know yet either. So. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't presented itself fully yet. No, I totally understand. And I, I, no pressure. I'm just excited to know that there's going to be another yeah, Tom Lin book but, to read one of these days. I, but I, I am working on it, promise. That's awesome. That's cool. 
So my last thing that I always ask everyone is what's the best advice anyone's ever given you? Oh, that's a good question. I would say, and I really hated to hear this, but I think it was the most helpful thing was finish the thing you're working on for so many reasons. The first reason is like, you know, when I was a kid, I played piano involuntarily. My parents made me. Um, and one of the strategies that we did was you'd play a piece and then whenever you messed up, you'd start again at the beginning. And so that way you get more, oh. more practice. But what that ends up doing is you have an incredibly well-practiced, perfect beginning and the quality goes down as you get further and further on into the song. And I think especially with writers or anyone who's like working on a creative project, starting something is so fun. Having an idea is so fun. And it's the finishing that's really the slog. And unfortunately, like you have to have something done if you want it to go anywhere. Um, yep. You just have to get practice finishing as much practice as you have starting something. If you think to yourself, I'm going to finish this, you have to type a bunch of loose ends. You might have been leaving open just because you didn't have to deal with them yet. Like it, yeah. it forces a lot of really good activity. And the downside is like, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, finishing is so hard. You know, I heard that advice and I was like, I don't want to do that. But I think it is actually the best advice that I've gotten, which is just finish just the thing. Finish. Just finish the thing. All right. Well, we're going to just finish this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Get some practice uh, closing up. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you again so much. I really recommend your book. We can't wait to highlight it on all of our channels. Hopefully lots of people will be joining me in the conversation about this. We'll be looking forward to the next one. Me too. Thank you for listening to The Bookshelf with Jennifer Morrison. Bookshelf is produced by Gerardo Salasco and Amanda D'Souza. Intro and outro by Aaron Guidry. Thank you for listening to The Bookshelf with Jennifer Morrison. The Bookshelf is produced by Gerardo Salasco and Amanda D'Souza. Intro and outro by Aaron Guidry.